All right, good morning. All right, welcome to Coastline, welcome to church. Those of you here in person, good morning. And then also those of you online, uh, welcome to service. Before we get into God's word, I have a couple of announcements um, that we want to talk about very quickly. First one is um, Friday, July the 30th. Okay, so Friday, July the 30th, we have our next marriage grow group. And so those, how many of you guys came for the first one? I know some of you guys came and I pray that we would see you that came and I pray that we'd also see um, some extra faces that evening. We had a wonderful time talking about our love story and then obviously lining it up with God's word. This particular Friday coming up on July 30th, we're going to be focusing on reviewing our vows. So we always hear about people renewing their vows, right? 20 years, 25 years, 50 years, people renewing their vows. Well, on that particular night, we're actually going to go and see or take a look at scripturally what we actually committed to. And so we're going to go back to our wedding days. And so if you're with us, you guys know not only do we have a special time in God's word, instruction and marriage through the lens of scripture, but we also do something really fun as a couple. And so that particular evening, we told our love stories through a little children's storybook or, um, or a high school board presentation. So you had to be here to know what I'm talking about. But it was a really fun time. We had a really um, enjoyable moment, just kind of laughing together and enjoying what the Lord has done and God being so faithful through the different marriages here at the church. On that evening, I can't tell you what we're going to do, but I can promise you this. It's going to top the storybook presentations, okay? So, ladies, you are going to see your husband in a very different light that evening, okay? We're going to bring, now I'm turning away the men. Some of you men are like, I'm not coming. So, I'm going to stop, but you're going to see your men in a very different light, okay? Let's just say if your man, that night is going to be what it would look like if your man took over the, uh, the women's ministry, okay? So I'm just going to leave it like that, okay? So if you ever wondered what it would look like if your husband took over a women's ministry, that's going to be the night, okay? So um, that's the most I can spoil it for you guys, but it's going to definitely be fun. We're going to go back to, I already see men shaking their head, so please come, okay? So, um, but it's going to be a wonderful night. And then that evening, we're going to actually have a special guest, um, a couple that, the Lord has definitely used in my and Christina's marriage, uh, Pastor Pat Shore and his wife Mary. They lead the marriage ministry over at Calvary Chapel South Bay. So they're going to come out that night and hang out with us. All right. And then the other big thing, obviously, as you guys know, our VBS is coming up. And VBS is going to be um, August 4th through 6th. It's a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday evenings. Okay. So um, I know that last week, right after service, we had um, our teams get together. I know that people have been um, planning. I know people have been going to each other's homes, doing some um, prep work. And also, it's happening. It's getting ready. People are excited. The only thing we need are your children, okay? So make sure you guys uh, talk to Pastor Sam there in the back who led worship this morning and his wife, Krishana. They can give you guys more instructions whether you want to get involved or how to sign your child up for uh, VBS, okay? So make sure you guys mark your calendar for those dates. And then lastly, 
this Wednesday evening, we have our second session um, specifically for our Grow Group series. So if you don't know, we're doing a Wednesday Grow Group series, and we're calling it Clarity, getting clarity on some of the basics of Scripture, some of the basics of God's Word. So this past week, Anthony over here in the front row with the brightest shirt in the room, he, um, he, did, a very, he did a very good job talking about the subject of what is a Christian through, um, from a biblical perspective. And then this week, we have our good buddy over in the sound booth, Arlen, who's going to be talking on the topic of what is the gospel. And so we know that you always hear that phrase, right? Pastors are always talking about the gospel. You know, you got to preach the gospel. We're saved by the gospel. The power of the gospel. And some of you guys might be sitting in the seat thinking, okay, yeah, the gospel. But what exactly is the gospel when we talk about it or when we reference it? Arlen, you got anything you want to share about it or you want to give us a little sneak preview or up to you? Uh, okay, okay, so, all right, so, if anything, that really leaves us on the edge of our seats, so, we're, so we're, we're coming, so I pray that you guys come out, um, it's going to be a wonderful time, and then also, um, if you have any questions, just like last week, you guys can um, grab a card, um, put your question related to the topic of what is the gospel, if you want something answered, you guys can um, get a little piece of paper, drop in the offering box, and whatever questions make their way in there, we'll do our best to answer them on Wednesday evening. All right, so those are our announcements. If you have your Bibles, would you go with me over to 2 Samuel chapter 15? 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we are making our way through the life of David by taking a look and studying 2 Samuel. And so this morning we find ourselves in chapter 15. We're going to take a look at the first 12 verses of this chapter. So let's start in verse 1. Let's read together and then we'll pray. It says in verse 1, chapter 15, After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. Verse 5, And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Verse 7, Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I was there at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. 
And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Verse 10, then Absalom sent spies through all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Verse 12, so Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, from, Gil- from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for just this moment, God, where we can sit and go through the scriptures together. We pray that you would take this particular passage and God, would you speak to our heart? Not only would we learn the text, but Father, I pray that you would speak to us through the text. Lord, that you would allow for there to be something in here that would be a word for us from you. And so God, even in advance this morning, we thank you. We thank you because we know that you're so faithful. We know that you're so good. And we know that by your spirit, Lord, you're going to speak to our hearts this morning. And so God, we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Last week, our story left off with David in Absalom reuniting after five years apart. You you guys remember the story. It was this heartfelt reunion between father and son. The son had been sent away. He'd been sent off, you know, scared of his father, scared of the repercussions, you guys remember, of murdering his brother Amnon. And so he spent three years apart from his father David. Eventually, David goes and brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. While in Jerusalem, you guys remember, Absalom is allowed in the city, but he's not allowed to go face to face with his father. And so another two years pass where father and son do not see each other. And it wasn't until Absalom, you guys remember, got the trick where he sees Joab's field And he says, okay, if the king won't meet with me, if everyone wants to ignore me or dismiss me, I'm going to go and I'm going to light Joab's fields on fire. That will get someone's attention. And so he has his guys, they go, they set the, the barley fields on fire. Joab finally makes his way back to Absalom. What are you doing? Why would you do that? And obviously Absalom the whole time is trying to get a face-to-face moment with his father David. In chapter 14, you guys remember it concluded with David and Absalom coming finally face-to-face. Absalom came, he knelt down before his father. David came and he kissed his son. And on the surface... What took place at the end of chapter 14 looked a lot like reconciliation. In fact, let me read to you the last verse of chapter 14. It says, Absalom is last seen in this posture of humility, where it says, Absalom came to the king. He bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. 
And then it says that there at the end of verse 33, and then the king kissed Absalom. But we all know what you see on the surface can be very different from what's beneath the surface. Last week we mentioned that in this situation, absence, specifically the first three years, and then the following two years, absence had made the heart grow bitter. It had made the heart grow angry. There was this resentment that had been building up within Absalom's heart toward his father, David. And as we get into chapter 15 this morning, we're going to see that resentment turns into full-blown revolt and betrayal here in our chapter. And if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to divide the first 12 chapters or the first 12 verses into three sections. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first section that we're going to focus on is verses 1 through 6 this morning, where Absalom undermines David. And so we're going to take a look at revolt, betrayal, and we're going to take a look at this first layer this morning in verses 1 through 6, where there's this undermining that takes place in our text. Go back with me to verse 1 this morning. It says, after this, it happened. So following the reconciliation, following the reunion, it happened that Absalom, he provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. We're going to stop here for a moment. If you have your pen, pencils, highlighter, something that makes a line this morning, would you underline there in verse 2, the gate. This phrase here, the gate, it's an important part of our text. You see, the gate of the city, the gate of Jerusalem, was the place where people would come, and there were all sorts of transactions that would take place at this gate. Before David took the throne, the previous center, the previous hotspot for transactions was actually in Hebron. But David eventually moved it, and so now the center of Israel is there in Jerusalem. And so at this gate, there was a lot that would take place. Business transactions would take place there at the gate of the city. Vendors would come as people would make their way to Jerusalem and they would put their little stations right outside to sell outside the gate of the city. And one of the other things that took place at the gate of the city was that judicial justice also took place at the gate of the city. This is where lawsuits that needed to be decided would be brought to And sometimes the deputy of the king would come and they would rule on different cases. And sometimes even the king himself would come to the gate and rule on these cases. And so Absalom sees the gate as a way in to the people. If he wants to undermine the king, if he wants to get a hold of the heart of the people, he sees the gate as the perfect place to undermine his father. And so we're told there in verse 2 that Absalom would get up early and he would go and he would position himself 
as a representative of the king at the gate. And so people would come with their lawsuits and, and Absalom would, would rule on these lawsuits. Now, it's interesting because when you think about the right person to pull this off, Absalom had everything going for him. Obviously, he had the connection. He's the son of the king, right? And so if you were to come to the gate with your lawsuit, expecting someone prominent to be there, what more prominent person, if the king himself couldn't be there, than the king's son? And so he would go, he would position himself, and he already had the position. But there were other things that Absalom had to be able to sway the people. Go back with me to chapter 14 very quickly and take a look at verse 25. Absalom had the good looks to sway the people. In chapter 14, verse 25, it says, Now in all Israel... There was no one who praised or was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. You know, I look back in the room and I, and, and I see Alex back there and I just think, now this is a verse that Alex can relate to, right? There's, there's not a man in all of Coastline who's praised as much for his looks as Mr. Alex Costa. You know, I mean, I... I I, I just think that, but listen, it says every part of him from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. How many of you guys got nasty feet? Anybody here got nasty feet because you wear sandals all the time? I mean, I got nasty feet. In fact, I only wear shoes when I'm here at Coastline. The rest of the week, my life is lived in sandals. And so the bottom of my feet are actually very dirty, very crusty. It's all cracked and they're they're, they're actually very disgusting. You know, lots and lots of blemishes. And that's only the bottom of my foot. I mean, there's other stuff. There's stretch marks. There's this little thing you've ever sat behind me in the back of my neck, you know, that little excess skin right there. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. So when I read this text, to think that, man, there's a man out there from the very bottom of his feet to the very top of his head. And I got these things by my eye, too, man. I hate them anyways. If you know a dermatologist, let me know. But I I, I just, I look at this, and I just think, man, this guy, this guy, if there was a guy who would be able to sway people, not only because of his position as the son of the king, but also his looks, without blemish, it was Absalom. But, but not only that, not only did he have the position, not only did he have the looks, but go back with me to chapter 15 now and take a look at verse 1. He had the entourage. He had the entourage. Take a look at verse 1. It says, after this had happened, Absalom provided himself power. He had the position, son of the king, He provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. You see, these chariots, they weren't for speed. They weren't to get him around, but they were to make this. um, He he, he provided himself these things so that he could make this impressive procession. So when Absalom showed up, you knew that it was Absalom. 
because here comes the chariots, here comes the horses. And out before him, he has these 50 men. What was he doing? He was creating an impression for the people. Here comes the man. Here comes the entourage. Here comes the man with the looks. There was this image that Absalom was creating. And he knew that if he could somehow pull off this image, people were bound to be swayed. People were bound to follow. But there was one more thing that Absalom had. Go with me over to verse 3. So he had the power, the position, the looks, the entourage. But he also had the words that people wanted to hear. Look at verse 3. It says that Absalom would say while there at the gate, Look, your case is good and right. So when people would come, obviously he's wanting to sway them with his rulings. And so he's going and he's telling people, man, sounds good to me. Man, your case, you're good and right. Everything was what the people wanted to hear. And obviously all of this would lead to Absalom having the heart of the people. Take a look at verse 6. It says, in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. All of it leading to, hey, I'm for David. Oh, I'm for David. Oh, I'm for David. Well, actually, there's a new David in town. It's his son. Look at him. Listen to him. See him. And he was able to still sway the hearts of the people. Now, before we go on, there's, there's one more thing I want to say about this plan, this plan to undermine David. I want you guys to go back with me to verse 1, and there's one more thing that I believe the, the text says that gives us good insight about Absalom. It says in verse 1, Absalom provided himself with. I want to stop there. Absalom provided himself with. With chariots, horses, men. Absalom. These words that describe Absalom also are words that describe a selfish man. A man who was focused on providing himself with a place on the throne. You see, this is the ultimate plan. This is not about horses. This is not about chariots. This isn't even about lawsuits or people. It's all a plan to undermine the throne, to undermine his father and provide himself with a place on the throne. If you're willing to undermine someone you love, you're very selfish. It's a very selfish thing. You see, to me, that person is all about himself. That person is all about herself. 
if you're willing to go and undermine your father, undermine someone that's brought you back into their life. I I read something this week, and I, I think it's important to mention this as well. Some say that Absalom's greatest sin was impatience. Some of us might say Absalom's greatest sin was murder. Some of us might say Absalom's greatest sin was betrayal. But what was at the heart of this betrayal? It was his impatience. He was very near, very close to the throne, and yet he had to wait. He was almost there on that seat. And so he was determined now to dethrone or to do whatever it took to dethrone the one who sat on the seat, even if it was his father. And so we see Absalom is a very selfish man. Number two this morning, if you're taking notes, the second layer, the second thing that we're going to see in our text this morning involving this revolt has to do with lying. Number two, the second layer has to do with lying in verses 7 through 11. Absalom lies to David. Go back with me to verse 7. It says, now it came to pass after 40 years. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, when I first read this text, I thought to myself, 40 years? This all happened over the course of 40 years. Well, actually, it wasn't 40 years. You see, there are some places in Scripture where in the midst of the copying or the midst of the transcribing, the copyist or the scribes actually would make an error. And so we believe that this is one of those places in Scripture where instead of saying 40 years, the copyist or the scribe should have actually put four years. And so go back to verse 7. It came to pass after four years. And there's different um, translations in different various languages that actually read four years. And if you go into Uh, Take a look at some of the ancient Hebrew writings and even some of the writings of Josephus. This error is actually corrected from 40 down to four years. And continue with me in verse 7. So it came to pass after four years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Geshur in Syria saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And so here's the lie. Absalom goes to David. It's now been four years since the reconciliation, since the reunion. It's now been four years that Absalom, in his heart, has been working to undermine David, making his way to the city, stealing the heart of the people, Now, after these four years, Absalom goes to David, we're told here in the text, and he says, I want to go back to Hebron. But he wants to go back to Hebron, not for the purpose of, hey, I miss it there. I have have some unfinished business there. He wants to go to Hebron 
under the disguise of worship. Here, here's what the conversation would have sounded like. Hey, Dad. Hey, hey, David. Back when I was in Geshur for those three years, remember, we won't talk about it, Dad, when you made me stay there and you wouldn't bring me back. Anyways, we won't talk about it, Dad. But back when I was there for those three years, I actually made a deal with the Lord. And, and, and here comes some of the light. And the Lord was so, so faithful, Dad. He was so faithful to keep his end of the deal. And so I feel that it's only right that I go back there to worship him. On the surface, it sounds good, right? I don't know about you, but for me as a dad, as a parent, with older children now, for me, I would love if my kids told me this. Hey, dad, uh, you know, I know I just got my license, but can I go to Las Vegas? You know, there's this great worship thing. You know, last time we went swimming in Vegas, I told the Lord I'd be back if, you know, he gave me my license. And I just feel it's only right that I drive to Vegas and go worship him. And Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, how many of us as parents wouldn't love for our kids to tell us, hey, God is so good, I want to worship him. But obviously, it was all under the disguise of worship. So often, when a person is divisive, they use the Lord as part of their reasoning for being divisive. And so there's this plan. What better way to go after his father's heart is the father who's unsuspecting, than to include the Lord in it. I'm going to bring God into it. You see, I know that I've referred to this as a lie, but there's something else I want to say real quickly this morning. I also believe that it's possible that Absalom did all of this under the umbrella of, of worship, and that somehow in his heart, maybe there was this little bit of truth where he felt he was doing God's will. Have you ever met someone who's caused division? Have you ever met someone who's caused a church, a church split? Have you guys ever been a part of a church split before, seen a church split? Usually when it's happening, and the party that's causing the split, causing the division, it's possible that in their heart, they actually feel that they're doing what God is calling them to do. Over the course of being a Christian, over the past 20, 25 years, I've actually been a part of three, on the good side, of course, you know, on the, on the superhero Christian side, but I've, I've been a part of three times where I've seen a church split where I've seen a group of people, for whatever reason, whatever cause, whatever was going on in their heart, them decide to go and divide a group of Christians. And in the midst of it, in, in a, at least a couple of these instances, these were people that I actually knew pretty well. And so it wasn't people that I was like, ew, stay away from me, but these were people that I was actually close to where the enemy got in the mix of it, got in the way of it, and they were swayed in, in a certain direction. And when you talk to these people, you know, they say, they're saying all the right things. Well, the Lord put this on my heart. Well, I just feel like I'm just doing what God is telling me to do. 
How many of those, how many of those phrases sound like something you've heard before, right? But at the core, the heart behind it, it's still divisive. So whether it's a lie or whether someone really senses that they're doing what God is calling them to do, it's still divisive. You see, men like Absalom often deceive themselves with words, with spiritual words. Well, you see, there, there, there was a need for new leadership, and so I'm going to go and start my own branch of this. And while I'm starting my own branch, I'm going to point back to the other side and, and undermine it. I'm going to say everything that it's doing wrong. Or how about this? They might say words like this, Thank you, Lord, for raising me up for a time like this. God, you're so good, man. This is the perfect time. What they're really saying is this is the perfect time to divide. Or they might say something like this, Lord, as I endeavor on this new venture, would you guide me? Would you bless me? Lord, as I endeavor to do what is best for your people. You see, division, dividing, is never what God sees as best for his people. Here Absalom is going, and under the disguise of worship, and under the disguise of God's will, he says, Dad, let me go. But what he's really doing is, Dad, let me divide. Let me divide. Let me say a few things this morning on division. You see, the Bible's very clear that we are not to cause division. And God's word sees division as a serious thing. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul has these words to say as he closes the book of Romans. He says in verse 17, Now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you've been taught. Stay away from them. Let me say this this morning. If division is a serious thing when it comes to a nation, how much more dangerous is division when it comes to God's people, when it comes to God's church, when it comes to what God is doing? And so Paul makes the appeal. Paul makes the plea. He says, listen, church. Listen, brothers, sisters. Listen, church family. You need to watch out. You need to be careful. You need to have your eyes open toward those who would cause division. Those who would come in and bring in a teaching that is contrary or unhealthy for God's people. He goes as far to say at the end of verse 17, there in chapter 16, stay away from them. So if there's teaching, if there's gospel presentation, 
and it's unhealthy, if it steers away from solid biblical truth, stay away from them because it's divisive. It divides. Let me me give you another one. And some of you maybe heard me share this before, but God has a list of things he hates. I know it sounds weird, right? God hates together in a sentence, but there is a place in Scripture where God's word is very specific about what he hates. The, the, the text is found in Proverbs chapter 6. Solomon makes a list of things that God hates. He says there are six specific things that God hates, and the seventh is an abomination of God. And in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, on this list of seven things, the very last one, the seventh one that's mentioned in the list of things that God hates is a person who sows discord in a family. Or another translation says, someone who sows division among brethren. Another translation says, someone who unleashes conflict. Someone that the enemy would use to come into the body of Christ, come into the church, come into amongst God's people and divide them. Sows discord, unleashes conflict. A commentator said it like this, he who troubles the peace of a family, of a village, of, a, of, of the state through lies and misrepresentations. Church, listen, we need to be very careful that we are not, that you are not someone who someone once said, and I, I love the way they said it, we need to make sure that we're careful not to be people who are mischief makers. Mischief makers. If there was someone who understood how evil, how ugly division was, it would have been Solomon. Consider this thought with me for a moment. You give me your eyes for a moment, church. Proverbs 6, most of the Proverbs are written by David's other son, Solomon, right? The man of wisdom. So Proverbs 6, most believe, was written by Solomon, So it's interesting to me that this morning we're talking about division amongst father and son. And then you go to a text like Proverbs 6 and you see the other son in the family writing, man, there's something God hates. God hates division. God hates when there's one part of the family that's going around and always splitting it up, always causing messes and conflicts. You see, if there was someone who was actually qualified to make this statement because he had seen it firsthand, it would have been Solomon. You see, Solomon was directly impacted by division. His father had caused division by remaining silent when his son raped his daughter, divided the family. His brother Absalom, he'd seen the betrayal, the division that his brother had caused by dividing a nation, by dividing the the men of Israel. Solomon had seen 
and he'd been affected by division. First hand, front row. If this was a concert, he had a seat in the orchestra section. He was right there. Everything before him. Everything in plain sight. Continue with me back to chapter 15, verse 9. It says, And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. So dad, what do you think? Can I go and worship? And David says, Go in peace. Absalom, for the past four years, said that nothing to give the appearance to David that he was about to turn on him. And so there really is no reason for David to question it. There's nothing there, so David says, go. And as a little side note, it's interesting that these are David's last words to his son Absalom. This will be their final conversation. Continue verse 10. It says, And Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. So Absalom, he pulls up to Hebron. He has 200 men along his side. And so it's all part of the appearance. We talked about the looks. We talked about the words. We talked about the chariots, the horses, the 50 men. Now he pulls together another 200 men. What's the, what's the image he's trying to give off? I have a following. I have a following. I'm the type of man that men want to follow. But what's interesting is that these men, they have no clue what they're being used for. Go, go, go back with me to the end of verse 11. It says that the men, the 200, they went along innocently and they did not know anything. Think about it like this with me for a moment. If the son of the king or the prince were to come to you in the country, in the nation, you don't ask questions, do you? I've come on behalf of the king. Follow me. What do you do? You follow. You don't ask questions. You don't revolt. You don't say, well, can I see some identification? I mean, you don't say anything. You say, yes, I'm ready. I'm following. And so these 200 men are following, and yet they don't know anything about what they're being used for. So Solomon has assembled a crowd of innocent followers. Let's go back to that topic, that subject of division for a moment. So often, the true victims in division are the innocent followers, aren't they? The people, well, everyone's going, so I'll follow. All my friends are a part of that, so I'll follow. Hey, it looks like everyone's going in that direction. I'll go in that direction too. So often when there's division, when someone's being divisive, innocent followers are victims. And then what happens? Eventually, 
They become indoctrinated. They become a part of the thing, part of the, the lie, part of the conspiracy. In fact, if you were to go to the end of our, our text this morning in verse 12, we're told that the conspiracy just continues to grow and to grow. Let me plug something real quick this morning. This is why I personally am so passionate about a few things. Number one, I'm super passionate that we make coming together, not just to hang out, not just because we're friends, not just because we're a church family, but I'm so passionate that we come together consistently on Sunday mornings to study God's word because it's so easy for someone to just pop up and say, hey, and they might have a little bit of an entourage, a little bit of a following. I'm a bit spiritual. I have the right connections. And then unsuspectedly, we just go along and follow. And I'm also passionate about Wednesday nights. I'm passionate that many of us make gathering together on Wednesdays to learn the the basics of Scripture, to get clarity on biblical truths. Because the innocent, the unsuspecting, if we're not not in God's Word, if we're not learning and grounded in the basics, someone could come along with a different type of teaching, with something that kind of sounds like what I've been taught from the beginning. And unsuspectedly, innocently, it's really easy to go off. And so I encourage you guys, Sundays, Wednesdays, our personal time with the Lord daily, these moments are so important in getting us grounded. Number three this morning, and this is the third layer, the third part of the revolt, and this is where we're going to finish this morning. If you're taking notes, would you write this down? The third layer in this revolt involved hitting David where it hurt. Hitting David where it hurt. Let's finish in verse 12 this morning. It says, And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileadite, David's counselor. Well, let's stop there. So we have this betrayal. We have this revolt. What what, what do we do? Well, I know. Let's undermine my father. Well, now what? I'll lie to my father. Well, that went great. Now what? Let's hit him where it really hurts. Let's go after his best friend. Let's go after his chief counselor. Let's go after his right hand, like, I mean, the guy, the guy who really makes David David. If we can get that guy, if we can hit him where it hurts, the betrayal's in full motion. So Absalom goes and he sends for Ahithophel. Now, let me give you guys a few things about Ahithophel that I think are important. Ahithophel, the reason why it's so important to add him to the revolt, to the betrayal, is because Ahithophel will add credibility. He'll add credibility. 
you see the people, not only do they recognize David as their king, Ahithophel would have been one of the most recognizable men alongside of David. So as you're trying to sway a crowd, as you're trying to sway a people, what better way? Let's get the man that they've always seen on stage with David. That'll add credibility to what we're trying to do. Ahithophel was one of David's top aides. He was one of David's closest friends. And according to verse 12 here, we're told that he was David's counselor. He was a man of wisdom. But there was another relationship that Ahithophel had to David that most people don't know about. In 2 Samuel, you might want to write this down, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, we're told that Bathsheba was the daughter of a man named Eliam. Eliam. And so when David went, took Bathsheba, had the affair with her, tried to cover it up, had her husband killed, all of that, we're told that that woman's father, his name was Eliam. And then according to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, we're told that Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. And so you put the whole story together and David's best friend, his top lieutenant, his right-hand man was Bathsheba's grandfather. This is Bathsheba's grandfather. So Absalom had his reasons for betrayal. He didn't like how his dad handled Tamar. He didn't like how his dad handled Amnon. He wanted to get to the throne. He didn't like that his dad sent him away for three years. He didn't like that his dad wouldn't meet with them for two years. Absalom would have had all his reasons for betrayal. But so did it, so did it hit the fell. So did it hit the fell. A hit the fell was the man. I, I can't help but think of this, and, and you guys might remember this story. Remember when we're told, I think it's chapter 11, I don't have this in my notes, I'm just off the top of my head. I think back in chapter 11, 2 Samuel, when David first saw Bathsheba, you guys remember the moment? He was out on the roof, should have been at war. He first saw him, or first saw her, and it says that he sent for his people, some of his closest people, to go and inquire about this woman. And then they found out who she was, and then they came back and reported it to David. I wonder if during that conversation, one of the things that David found out was from Ahithophel. I wonder if at some point Ahithophel would have said, hey, the young lady that you're acquiring about, she's married. Not only is she married, David, that's my granddaughter. And remember, we're told that David got this information and he dismissed it, right? He still sent for her, had her come to him, and they did what they did. I wonder if it was at that moment that Ahithophel just started to resent him. Here I am, your lead counselor, your chief of wisdom, whatever role, whatever title would have been assigned to Ahithophel. I wonder if over the course of those conversations, at some point, 
He said, stay away from my granddaughter. And David ignored him. David ignored the man. David ignored, ignored the counsel. And David ignored the heartfelt grandfather. Yet because this man is king, you have to tuck under him. You have to submit to him. You have to surrender to his reign as king. Do what he says. All the while, it's just building up. The love that he had for his granddaughter, just building up. Let me say this this morning. We need to make sure that we are absolutely careful to value the closest people in our life, to value their counsel, to value their, their warnings, and to value when they come to you with something heartfelt. You see, what David did, David did a poor job of, of valuing his friendship with Ahithophel. David should have known that was his granddaughter. The moment that that was made aware, it should have been off limits. And yet David didn't value this friendship. Let me close by saying this this morning. Some of us might be able to look at Absalom and say, I get it. I get the betrayal. Some of us might look at Ahithophel and say, I definitely get it. I understand the betrayal. Let me say this this morning. Regardless of David's actions, Ahithophel was wrong. Regardless of David's actions, Ahithophel would forever and is forever in Scripture labeled as a betrayer. In fact, some who study God's Word and some who have commented on God's Word over the years, some scholars have even gone as far to label Ahithophel as a type of Judas Iscariot. You know, there's always these parallels in the Old Testament and and these pictures in the Old Testament, and you try and capture the image of it in the New Testament, Ahithophel is often associated as this picture in the Old Testament of Judas. And before we dismiss it, it's kind of interesting because the similarities between Ahithophel and Judas, they're actually very similar. You see, both were trusted friends, who betrayed their friend. Ahithophel betrayed his friend, David. And obviously Judas betrayed his friend, Jesus. They both joined in with the enemy in their plots to take out the king. Ahithophel joined in with Absalom to take out King David. And obviously, Judas joined in with the plot, and he kissed Jesus. And they both, lastly, had the same ending. They had the same ending. They both went out, and they hung themselves after the betrayal was complete.
In 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23, we read the story of Ahithophel going and ending, taking his life. And in Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, we see the same ending with Judas. You guys can close your Bibles. We're, we're, we're done this morning. But let me finish with this before we pray. Give me your eyes for a moment, church. If there is any sort of bitterness, any sort of resentment, anything that's been allowed to build up over the course of time, I beg you, I plead with you, surrender it to the Lord. It is so dangerous to let it linger. It is so dangerous to let it build up. I mean, we've been watching for the past few weeks as we're going through the text. We're watching Absalom just snap out of resentment. We're watching Ahithophel turn out of resentment. It's so dangerous. It's so ugly. It divides. It kills. If it's in there this morning, don't let it linger. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this time that you've given to us to be able to sit and receive it. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would take, Lord, the picture here of, of Absalom and all the resentment, all the anger. Lord, even the impatience, God, of wanting to get on the throne, wanting to undermine his father, all the lies, the selfishness. Lord, if any of those things are in our heart, I pray that we would surrender them to you. And Father, if there's any a hit that fell in our hearts this morning, Lord, if there's anything within us, God, that's just been eating away, Lord, if there's anything that's happened to us where at one time we were the victim, we were the innocent party, but God, it's just allowed just this ugliness, this darkness to cloud our heart and to cloud our mind. Father, I pray that we would also surrender that to you. Lord, at the end, Lord, everything, everyone in our text is just ugly. It's destructive. It's divisive. And Lord, it even affects the innocent. It affects the unsuspecting. So Lord, I pray that right now, this moment, God, before we go, that it would be a moment of surrender to you, a moment of handing over whatever's in our heart to you. And so, God, we love you. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's all stand. You know, church, this morning, I encourage you, 
before you go, as we sing this last song, please do not let surrender be something we simply sing about. Would you allow surrender to be something that actually takes place in your heart, that takes place in your life? Let's worship. Let's sing this last song to the Lord.